the Wheelie Podcast. Let your iPod bloom. Welcome, listener, to podcast number 39 from the Wiggly Sofa. I'm Heather from Wiggly Wigglers. And I'm Richard from Wiggly Wigglers. And we're joined by... Farmer Phil from the farm. And, <laughs> and your sidekick... Toast the dog from the farm. <laughs> and we've had lots going on this week at Wiggly Wigglers, but the first thing that we must go to is the little owl story. Because, Richard, you listened to the podcast last week yeah. and you diagnosed a small problem. Well, I kind of thought, <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of I thought it was a tawny, in actual fact. I mean, I could, you know, it could be proved wrong. But the, the reason that I, I'm pretty adamant that it is a tawny is because I've listened to do exactly the same noises for over several nights now at home. Get a lot of tawnies at home and, you, you know, they're kind of fluttering around the banks and landing on the shed roofs and chitter-chatting to one another. And it is exactly the same sound, so... Yeah, I kind of think they're probably young tawnies that are coming out at the same kind of time every night, landing on the roof, communicating with one another. So young ones make that sound and then the older ones go twit to woo, don't they? Twit to woo. Well, it's funny people say twit to woo, but in actual fact, usually it's the one owl that goes twit and the other owl that goes to woo. Oh! Yeah, and that's why you don't have that, that noise. But yeah, that's how they... Because they do communicate between each other. They're, they're quite vocal birds and they are relatively sociable, actually. And you saw one this morning, didn't you? I did. I was, I was walking the dogs this morning. I, as I went round the track as a, a tawny, there was a massive clap of thunder and the dogs went a bit crackers barking up into a tree. I'm not sure what they were barking at, but I think it may have been a squirrel or it may have been the owl. But anyway, a big tawny came down and shot in under the, the arch of the, all the overhanging branches and clattered into a couple of hazel boughs and, and uh, dropped down into the dingle below me. Yeah, lovely sight. And are tawnies under threat? No, I think they're doing quite well. I think they're doing well in, in most places. It all depends if they, they can do well if they've got plenty of nest sites and plenty of food. So they like areas where there are lots of voles. If there's farmland with good buffer zones around the hedgerows, some set aside. Uh, but uh, tawnies um, do tend to, tend to hunt a lot in, in woods as well. They like, <laughs> they like grass seed rich because there's <laughs> lots of mice and voles yeah, in grass yeah, seed absolutely. and they love it. And they're in the barns here as well, aren't they? So we've talked about them before in the barns here. But yeah, nesting sites are probably one of the most difficult things for owls because they do like large dead trees in order to make their nests in. But people can help by putting up tawny tubes in suitable places. Yeah, but they've got no bottom in them, have they? They've got a bottom in, they've just got no top. Right. But you put them at a between, I don't know, 45 degree angle is, is pretty good. It's a strange thing, isn't it? Uh, yeah, well, it's just I suppose it's something to replicate at the hollow bough and you can strap them underneath a bough. I'll use some uh, tree ties, something like that, cable ties. And then if it's in the right situation, there's every chance an owl will use it. So, our little owl was in fact a tawny. Yeah, tawny. And we have let Sam and Alex know. So thank you to Alex for that recording last week. Uh, We were wrong, it was a tawny. But thank you. So this week we've had just tons of interviews and the first one is with James Hewitson Brown who I had an opportunity to chat to at the BASP day and he's going to tell us all about wildflower turf. Right. So we'll do that first Ricardo. Excellent. Right then James, <laughs> we're in the Wiggly Garden and we're surrounded by, do you call yourself BOSPs? BOSPs. 
B A S P. Oh, BASPs, I suppose. Oh, BASPs, right. <laughs> and so tell me what you are. I am a farmer that has, has come here to visit this wonderful farm and see your grass seed, which we produce at home, but we've diversified into turf production. Fine. So you're James, our secret turf man, who we ask about all these questions about wildflowers and stuff like that. Yes, I do my best to answer them. Well, what the Wiggly customer will want to know is how you grow that turf not giving away any of your farmer trade secrets we developed a soilless turf so we don't um, sow the fields we uh, produce it on an impermeable membrane using compost and we've been doing that for a few years but uh, decided that we could do a wildflower turf using the same method which is not very easy to do on the soil based method so we've been doing that for about four or five years trialling varieties and generally working on it and think we've got something now that we now sell to you. And what advantage has that got over conventional turf production methods? Well, it's a quick turnaround would be one advantage and and because the compost we use is inert and clean, we don't get weeds in it, so that makes for a good quality lawn turf, but it also allows us to do this wildflower uh, system. And one of the big advantages for the wildflower system is that, unlike conventional turf, we don't need to rely on a long time to create a turf that you can lift and handle because it's on the impermeable membrane. The roots just knit together because they can't grow into the soil and make basically a sort of carpet-like turf that's very strong you can pick it up from one corner it won't fall to bits and with the wild flowers that's important because we sow at a very low seed rate so they're not highly competitive and the wild flowers which aren't very competitive have a chance to get established and get going and the turf industry has taken a bit of stick over the years for soil depletion so does this get rid of that issue well i've got to be careful what i say because one of the basp members is a turf producer so uh, <laughs> but actually i think to be fair to them they got their machinery so efficient now that they don't take a huge amount of soil but in our case certainly there's zero removal of topsoil and we use as much sustainable compost as we can in our system so it is yes environmentally friendly from that point of view yeah. very diplomatic love yeah <laughs> i got to be careful <laughs> and what about water because you must use just well, gallons because, of water yeah because of the membrane if you don't water it it dries out and dies but, which is a bit of a trade off because I mean it, because of the quick turnover we get a few more crops a year and the end result is uh, beneficial especially with the wildflower the biodiversity that creates but certainly we water a lot Uh, we've developed a system whereby we try and reuse uh, some of the water that we're putting on the turf uh, filter it again and put it into a reservoir we've built and then reuse that so we're doing our best to keep it going fantastic thank you james that's a good just remind us phil what a basp or a bosp is (laughs) A BASP, and I'm a BASP, is the British Association of Seed Producers, which is a national collection of farmers who grow principally grass seed, but also cereals and other seeds for seed, so for other people to plant, either as turf or as an agricultural crop for other farmers. And we had the opportunity to go and see James's farm down in Hampshire last year, didn't we? That's right. He's got a pretty slick operation going down there. He's right at the front of technology and efficiency. He's, he's right on the money. Mm. And um, he's planted up an area by his pond with his wildflower turf, which he tells me this year is looking particularly stunning. Mm. So that's a kind of foolproof way of ensuring you don't get too many thistles and docks and plantains and whatnot in, uh, in around your pond, I guess, after you've excavated it, isn't it? Yep. And then uh, talking about ponds, we've got our pond day coming up soon, haven't we, 
Wiggly Pond Day. We One have indeed, of, uh, Ricardo. Wiggly courses. We reviewed your last course last week when you weren't here. You heard that? I, I heard some of it. Yeah, <laughs> so, uh, that was good. It went really well. That was a great. Uh, Phil talked too much, but other than that, <laughs> <laughs> other than that, you I didn't think, walk much, though, did yeah, you? Yeah, I didn't walk. We intended to walk further. <laughs> yeah, but it's because Phil's far too interested for his own good. But folks were asking him loads of questions, and we didn't get anywhere near as far as I would have liked. But never mind. But they really enjoyed themselves. And again, fantastic weather, great day, lots of opportunity for people that otherwise wouldn't get those opportunities. And even I learn something new every time Phil's rattling on about bits and bobs. It's, it's and I gather in technique. my sub-Saharan monoculture, there was yeah. even some wildlife to yeah, be seen. Yeah, was actually. That was. <laughs> I, was, uh, I did eat my words. I brought in a whole bunch of different wildflowers that I'd, uh, that I'd grubbed up from the hedgerow on my little dog walking session in the morning before I came over to here. And I also brought a cinnabar moth caterpillar because there's loads of ragwort at home and there's loads and loads of cinnabar moth caterpillars all over it. So I brought it in for a bit of a competition to see if they could identify it. And, and they couldn't, in actual fact, which is, which is funny because that was one of those, those caterpillars that when they kind of, when you're a child, everyone knows that it's, those are cinnabar moth caterpillars, you know, bright yellow and black striped creatures. And I said, there's no way you'll see one of those around here. <laughs> <laughs> so we walked up to the, into the farmyard and we were looking at thistles and birds with trefoil and hedge woundwort and all these bits and pieces. And I, I clocked some ragwort. And I said, oh, there's some ragwort. And I said, but what you probably won't find are any cinnabar moth caterpillars. Blow me. <laughs> Someone said, Richard, what's this? <laughs> and it was a cinnabar moth. Oh. Just in that little bit, little corner. So, yeah, so they were around, so they obviously, you know, one or two around here as well, which is great. And that was really good to see, in actual fact. I was quite chuffed that there were one or two around. I think that's the space that you leave, isn't it? That patch going up into the fields there. So a nice little bit of set aside. Uh, that obviously provides a nice bit of refuge for all sorts of inverts. So give us the lowdown briefly, briefly, yeah. on what will happen on Pond Day. So what, what tends to happen is folks turn up, nice coffee, chit-chat, introductions, and we try and make it as practical as possible. So that it's really hands-on. So what people will be able to get from the end of the day is a good insight on how to build their own pond, the kind of creatures that they're likely to see in their pond, ways and means of planting up a pond with good native species of aquatic and riparian plants and they'll also get a reasonable insight into species identification so we'll look at back swimmers and water boatmen and water skimmers and whirligig beetles and dragon and damselfly nymphs and, and newt larvae and all those kind of things that you really liked catching when you were a kid but you've kind of forgotten all about you know, since you've become an adult so that's really exciting, and pond dipping, uh, that's probably one of the most exciting elements of uh, one of our, our weekly open days as well, aren't they? You're going to have a lovely day, aren't you? Yeah, that's yeah, great tough. day, yeah, it's a brilliant day. So, uh, and, and we'll get to compare different types of ponds, so different ecosystems. We'll look at the conventional garden wiggly pond, yeah. and, and in actual fact there's probably more life in that pond than there is in the natural glacial cirque, as Phil talked about previously, because there tend to, there's probably too much waterfowl on there, too much eutrophication, you know, it, so we'll look at that, then we'll hopefully, depending on how much time we've got, we'll wander up into the woods and check out that pond in the woods. Uh, and, and I know that pond we're going to have as part of our family day, and we're going to frape up there hopefully and have a nice big family picnic up there. So yeah, I'm telling them people get to compare different environments and be able to check out the life that exists in those environments. Uh, there will be similarities, certainly. Well, there's... The date for the pond day is the 19th of July. 
and then the family days booked out in August I know already but for all details of the courses just go to our website and Country Living actually sent a spy on your course uh, earlier in the year, uh, I think right. Worms Day. Uh, Worms, Worms um, Day, so yeah. Christine came along from Country Living magazine, which mm. is the UK's leading countryside magazine, and she's going to write a review on the course in the September issue of Country Living. And they phoned me up just the other day for some photos right. to go alongside it, so mm. we'll see what <laughs> they say. Uh, good job I <laughs> bored her to death that day. Which eh? photos did you send them? <laughs> you didn't, I wasn't consulted. <laughs> you know the one that you uh, like the mad professor? No, 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 dodgy. That goes out to a big audience, isn't it? So yeah. there we are. Yeah, that'd be good. be interesting to see what she says. She said she hadn't said lots of nice things, but you never know. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Yeah. And yesterday we had a great day, didn't we, Phil? Yeah, we did. Jan and Fran from EM came to see us yesterday morning and we were talking about the latest developments in their products and our products, the Bokashi. Jan, who is the scientist of the party, inspected my Bokashi production and duly prescribed it to be excellent. Excellent, So we were chuffed with that. Yeah. He gave um, us a talk on water, Rach and I. Gave Rach and Heather a science lesson, which was interesting. Yeah, yeah. Didn't go much, really. <laughs> I did say on a flip yeah. chart yesterday, we had a wiggly meeting, didn't we? And yeah. he, he said, oh, do you know what that is, means, Rich? I said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lying through my teeth. Um, but, well, Phil yeah. said at the end of it that Jan had explained why snowflakes were snowflakes. Right. But he hadn't actually mentioned snowflakes, so Rach and I right. were Because Jan's a complete puzzled. scientist, he forgot to actually put the practical bit on, but what he was describing was why <laughs> snowflakes always have six sides. Right. And but he that, didn't say that. That is why it is. Uh, right. Uh, anyway, fantastic. I did manage to get to ask him a key <clears throat> wiggly question, so we'll just go over to that interview. I'm here with Jan and Fran from EM Limited. Thank you very much for coming, Jan. And the question that everyone wants to know is, how can those EM ceramics possibly work? To make ceramic, you have to get to a temperature of something like 2,000 degrees, which I think would then zap all those friendly bacteria in those ceramics. And yet, I know from my own experience... That Monty's fish tank stays clearer for miles longer when I put them in. So I know they work, but I cannot see how. Okay, I can imagine that you can't understand it, because it was very difficult for me to to understand it in the beginning as well. They teach me in Japan how it works. Okay. If you want to understand, we should go to first to your computer. The center of your computer is a ship, and the center of the ship is silicon. Silicon is actually the secret of EM ceramics because the base of EM ceramics are clay minerals and if you go into clay minerals and you look to them then the center of clay minerals is silicon. Silicon is something what can store information and that is actually the word you should pronounce it not information no information. What we do with ceramics is as follows. First you take a certain kind of clay minerals. This clay minerals You mix with bacteria and feed and then you leave them alone for several months on anaerobic conditions. And then these clay minerals are fermented. A bacteria is something like you and me, we all resonate. This resonance actually is information. And this resonance brings the silicon structure of clay mineral in resonance. 
and then the trick comes, you bake them. If you bake those silicons, all the bacteria will die off. Very simple. But the resonance, the information, is in the clay mineral. So actually, the information, the, the resonance of the bacteria, is taken in by the silicon structure. So if you put back those silicon structures, like the clay minerals, which are baked, baked and you put them in your, in your aquaria, then you will see that actually this information of the bacteria goes back to the water and you bring the water in formation. So that's the whole trick. Yeah, that's all well and good. Um, but how the heck have you proved this? <laughs> I think your fish already proved it in the aquaria. <laughs> we did a lot of research work on it and you can see it work in many fields. So it, it works. Thank you very much. So there we go. That was Jan and Fran from EM. And they've got lots of things coming up, including a conference in Bavaria in yes. September. That's right. I think I'm going to that, aren't I? Oh, are you rich? Uh, I think so. Well, I hope so. You did say, do I want to go the other day? And I thought, well, I see. I definitely want to go to that. But, uh, you know, it seems logistically possible. Trip it, off. Yeah, trip off. Yeah. Drop of the old Bavarian yeah. um, really interesting. motion lotion, you think, Rich? It's in, on an island in the middle of a big lake. So I think it's an hour from Munich. I want an adventure. Two days conference. It'll be really interesting. Well, that could be good go either way, I suppose. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I want to go to the podcast conference. Where's the podcast? That's California. Yeah, I think so, yes. California. Yeah. Yeah. I'll yeah. go and October. drive my tractor. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you've been up to something very exciting, haven't you? I've done my first Skype interview. But I should say that, as yet, Michael hasn't sort of had a <laughs> chance to get at it. So I should have the reservation. He may throw up his hands in dismay and say, what can I do with this rubbish? But anyway, what happened was that I made one of my blunders on the subject of TB. And Melanie Matthews, who works for a TB charity called TB Alert, which is actually more human TB based, pulled me up on it. And so we thought we'd invite her onto the podcast and let her put my errors right, which mm. she did, and came up with quite a lot of other interesting stuff on the, the latest thoughts on TB, both in humans and animals. So we look forward to that. It was good. So much so that, of course, being Farmer Phil, his interview is 18 minutes long. <laughs> and so that will be Poor a Phil. special podcast next week, all being well, because we're on holiday next week. So either Podcast 40 is a holiday next week, or it's the Phil interview with Melanie Matthews on TB, a Skype interview. So... Hope you tune in to that, listener. And meanwhile, we've got a treat for you because Ricardo has been down on the farm with Ali on a quad bike. Yeah, that was Richard, good. you that was can't great. drive a quad yeah. bike. Well, Alison did say, uh, after I got on it, she said, um, have you driven a quad before? And I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> so little Alison, she got on the side, she was, she was riding pinion and she, uh, she held on for <laughs> grim death and off we went and uh, when we had a sheepdog on one side snapping at the traffic as we were trying to get across the main road and, and little Alice on the other side and uh, we went fraping down to the river to see the, the couple of willow trees fantastic spot and the whole the whole of these trees was encased in a web a silky web and in amongst the silky web there were nests and they were absolutely inundated with tiny little caterpillars chrysalis and little white micromoths and they were all hatching and around them there were swarms of tiny parasitic wasps 
Now, whether those wasps were parasitizing on the on the moths or on the pupa, I wasn't sure. But it was a just a, a amazing situation, you know. And I've never seen that before. I've seen the little the little sort of silken nests around the catkins of those willows, but I've never seen those kind of moths in anywhere near that that abundance. And I didn't know what they were. I, I you know, I, I was you like, are? I have no idea. I'm sorry. No idea. But in my defence, there are, I think there are something like 2,000 different species of moths in the UK. I think there are something like 1,200 different species of micromoths of which these were. However, Alison got on, on, the, uh, on the Google and found what they were, and they're um, willow ermine moths. Right. About 20, 20 miles long. And apparently, they are fairly localised, but they are incredibly abundant in certain places at certain times of the year. So spasmodic reproduction, but they can be hugely prolific in some instances, which, of course, is what they were last night. What do they look like, then? Well, those guys were probably about 20 mils long, 15, 20 mils long, white with tiny little black spots. Uh, And and obviously they hold their wings along the length of their bodies. And they had quite long antennae, and their antennae were really animated, you know, and they were twiddling around all the time. They were obviously hatching and moving off to pastures new. Great. So more active at night then, or? Uh, well, they were. Well, it, that was early afternoon, uh, early evening, late afternoon, wasn't it? Yesterday, so they were all they were moving around in the daytime. But I imagine those species will probably be more active at night. You do tend to find micro moths are more active at night. Some of the larger species of moths, tiger moths, for instance, like your scarlet tigers, and then of course your burnet moths. You know your cinnabars mm. and your six and five spot burnets they you know they're, they're more active in the daytime but uh, these guys were obviously hatching in the daytime which is why they were leaving but i imagine what they probably do is leave that those nesting areas and go and find somewhere quiet to rest up before um going and doing whatever they do at night so vroom vroom it's the ricardo roving reporter <laughs> on great. four wheels oh, that's really good oh. <laughs> we're down by the banks of the y I've just driven Alison down here. She's been clinging onto the quad by the <laughs> by her fingernails, and uh, she, we did get halfway. And Alison said, well, "Have you been, driven one of these before, Rich?" And I said, "No." <laughs> but we got here. We got here, and Alison showed me this amazing. There are two willows, and uh, they're absolutely plastered in what look like ermine moths. But I don't think they are ermine moths because they they seem too small, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they seem a lot smaller now that they some of them have hatched out. Haven't they? They, they have. And uh, what does it look like, Alison? There are all these tiny nests on there. Well, these massive nests of, like, green caterpillars. But on the ends, because they're changing, they're, they're going black um, in a mass of cobwebs. But that one in the middle of the tree, look, it's, it's huge. This is huge, isn't it? I mean, it is absolutely massive. And what's interesting, there are all these... You see all these tiny little parasitic wasps? You see all these tiny little wasps, look, and they're trying to infiltrate oh, yeah. the nest. So whether they're trying to catch some live caterpillars or lay their eggs inside the uh, inside the caterpillars but in actual fact if you look on the outside of the nest there are tiny little casters aren't they yeah, right. and i wonder whether that those are the the casters from these tiny little parasitic wasps but this is obviously what but these are, are i mean there are here. tens of thousands of them aren't they and they're micromoths of sorts they're probably what are they 15 mil long 15 yeah. mil long white with tiny little black spots fantastic little things We'll have to find out what they are. I've, I've no idea what they are, just to look at, to say, but uh, I can certainly try and look them up tonight and find out what they are. 
But yeah, I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Have you seen anything like this before? No, no, never like this. Yeah. And let, the whole trank has got a huge cobweb surrounding the whole surface of it. It has. If you look at Oh, wow. It's yeah. all surrounded with cobwebs from top to bottom of the that tree. That is amazing. And, and how tall is this tree? Even, the, even from yeah. the trunk, look, right it, the way up. Every it's little crevice has got these tiny, tiny caterpillars and moths all over it. Yeah. The whole trunk. What's that? How many feet is that? It's got to be 25 foot, isn't it? Yeah. Easy. Yeah. 25 foot and it's just completely encapsulated in a cobweb that is incredible now I can safely say I've never seen anything like this before so um, this must be a good year for this particular species I don't know it's because of the dry weather we've had I don't know but uh, yeah it's astonishing absolutely amazing so we'll have to look it up won't we yeah Find but out hopefully what they are. So some of the listeners will you you never know people that yeah hopefully they'll be able to see something like this any of the keen anglers out there that have been walking on the riverbank have seen anything like this and it'd be great if they did let us know but um, we'll have to find out anyway well, thanks for bringing me down here huh? it's alright it's a good ride <laughs> all the girls say that cheers thanks Alison that was really good and uh, I guess that's a wrap for this week it's been really interesting hasn't it is that a compost wrap <laughs> <laughs> that is a wrap. That is a wrap. Uh, thanks, guys, and uh, I look forward to next week's Phil's debacle. Hopefully. Well, it should be all right. My phone went off once, and Melanie's went off twice during the interview, so Michael will no doubt be in a fearsome temper by the time he's done it. But yeah, we'll look forward that'd to be it. Great. It'll be excellent. Cheers, Phil. And that's that's bye from me. And me. And me. Cheers. She had said lots of nice things, but you never know. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Uh, and yesterday we had a great day, didn't we, Phil? Did we? What did we do yesterday? And yesterday we had a... <laughs> it, was that, it was that good. It was that good, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, what did we do yesterday? Jan and Fran. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's a long time since yesterday. <laughs>